This is the last in a series on Pirkei Avot, which is uh, ethics, um, about ethics. It is the, uh, the first collection, if you don't count the Ten Commandments, and then this week's Mishpatim uh, uh, portion of the Torah that then has 50 more laws in it. Uh, if you don't count that as the first collection of sort of Jewish ethical principles, which you probably should, beyond the biblical principles, Pirkei Avot, is the first uh, a collection of Jewish ethical principles. Um, and it is, uh, as I mentioned before, the only um, book tractate in the Talmud <coughs> that is literally only the Mishnah, which means there's no commentary at all on it. It's simply always stayed the way it was without commentary as a sort of handbook of pithy sayings about how we should act, how we should treat each other, how we should treat ourselves, how we should act as judges because the rabbis were judges literally in court, how we should act as teachers because the rabbi means teacher and the rabbis were teachers, how we should act toward our students, how to essentially make the world work which is what Pirkei Avot's about. How do you make your lives work? How do we make our relationships work? How do we make the world work? According to the rabbis of a couple thousand years ago. And um, someone, one of our brilliant members, Vicky Fox, one of our um, brilliant members suggested that what we should have as a series is, um, uh, should do a series on current events through a Jewish lens, or at least if I do it through my Jewish lens. Um, so I think we're going to do that because people, in fact, are interested, particularly today, in current events and what's going on in the world and how it's affecting us and how, um, how the challenges of these next years together, um, there's so many issues to talk about in terms of values and ethics and how we treat each other and and who's, uh, role, what role models we have, and obviously from the top down, which I won't get into tonight, but it seemed like a really good idea. <coughs> so I think we'll do that. So I have two things for you tonight. I have chapter four, because we were doing one, two, three, four of these chapters, and I have my Pirkei Avot top ten list, which is the white one. Um, and I didn't... Uh, Tell you where those are from, and I just sort of grabbed them. But, so let's do this, uh, the wisdom of the sages, Pirkei Avot, the colored page that's chapter four first. We'll talk about that, and then we'll see where it takes us tonight, since uh, a couple of you were, weren't here in the past. Um, and remember, uh, these rabbis uh, spanned uh, several hundred years, and it's one of the great things about both the Mishnah and the Talmud is um, that we end up with conversations as if we're having conversations among rabbis who lived hundreds of years apart are talking to each other. And it's been that way for thousands of years, literally ever since there's been, it's kind of like the Torah commentaries, ever since the Torah was written 3,000 years ago, Every time someone comments on it, it's as if they're in dialogue with the text or with whoever wrote that. And certainly rabbinic literature ever since the uh, beginning of the common era, 
from maybe the second century BCE, before the Common Era, when some of this was written till now, was this, is this, has been, and continues to be, really, an ongoing conversation, an ongoing dialogue. It's why we have all those jokes about two Jews and six opinions and all those kinds of things, because arguing and discussing and disagreeing is fundamental to learning, number one, and is fundamental to the Jewish uh, intellectual way of life, and has always been. Uh, arguing back and forth. And why is the Talmud 20 volumes long? The Talmud is 20 volumes long because all of the minority opinions are in there. That's why. Otherwise, it would just be this big. It would be one book saying, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, which actually eventually did happen. It was called the Shulchan Aruch much later. Somebody said, let's just take out all the do this and do this part and give that to someone so they can have a simpler book so they know how to act without all the conversations. But the Talmud is long because it has all the conversations and all the discussions and all the disagreements. And uh, and in fact, the rabbis valued those disagreements so highly that even in the Talmud itself, they have discussions about the value of disagreement. And, you know, and why was Hillel's Versions of things always chosen over Shammai's versions of things, and one of the and the later rabbis said the reason was because Hillel always quoted Shammai before they delivered their own answers. They always gave respect to the opposition. They always treated the opposition with with a sense of dignity, saying that Elu ve Elu divre Elohim Chaim. It's one of the famous phrases from the Talmud that means both these and those are the words of the living God. Both sides of the argument are literally the words of the living God, is what it says in the Talmud, how the rabbis approached, that this is how we in fact learn. This is how we in fact arrive at the truth. We don't arrive at the truth. God, it's so hard not to be political, isn't it? We so, it's like no matter what you say, it just goes, reverts right back there. We don't arrive at the truth by simply declaration. We arrive at the truth by disagreement, argument, and wrestling with ideas at least in Jewish civilization, and always have. Um, <clears throat> so that's one of our great challenges today, obviously, in uh, in a world of increased polarity, polarization. So, <clears throat> the wisdom of the sages, Pirkei Avot, chapter 4. First one is also one of my top ten, just to show you, <coughs> which is... Um, Rabbi named Ben Zoma. I, I love this. Uh, this one of the section is one of the sections from the Talmud, the Mishnah that I always remembered and that is quoted almost more than any other, uh, because it's a series of questions and answers. Yeah, it's all from Ben Zoma. He asks the questions and then he gives the same, and then he gives the answers. But and they're worth wrestling over. So Ben Zoma asks the question: Ezehu Ashir, who is um, in Ezehu Chacham, who is wise. And gives the answer is Halomed Mikol Adam, the one who learns from everyone. It's a revolutionary notion. Who is wise? The one who learns from everyone. One who is open literally to even the opposition. That's where I started with a moment ago. That that's real wisdom. You can only consider someone wise who in fact is willing to learn from whomever, wherever it comes from. That everybody has 
his hour or her hour, and everybody has that, a moment when they're right. Even the, you know, a clock without a battery is right, right twice a day, right? Isn't that what people say? Um, so the one who is, how nice, okay, bro. One of each, I'm good. Tipper wrote a wonderful novel. You should all read it as soon as it's published. Um, so who is wise? One who learns from everyone. And then he asks, um, who is strong? And um, this is one of the more famous phrases of the Talmud. Who is strong? And there's many ways of translating it. Hakovesh et Yetzro is the literal Hebrew. The one who is strong is the one who conquers his Yetzer, his inclination or his passions. Okay, so what does he mean by that? Might as well pause. I see the translated one who controls his anger. Yeah, that's that's a version of it. Yeah. You know who is who is strong? Who is strong? Ezu Gibor is the is the Hebrew here, which is really interesting because Gibor doesn't just mean strong. Gibor is the Hebrew word for hero. Literally, Giborim or heroes. So when the Talmud asks Ezu Gibor, it's like they mean also Gevura is strength. So it comes from the same word, but who is, who's able to conquer, you know, who's the conqueror, really? And it's it, not just physical. So it's not just physical, but it has that sense of, of who's the, you know, who's the real hero? Kovesha Yetzro, the one who's able to control, conquer his or her passions. Yeah. One who's not egocentric. One who's not egocentric would be one way of, like, I told you you can't say anything without being political around here. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't say one who controls other people. No. Which is what you would think of as strong as someone who dominates other Beautiful. people. Beautiful, yes. You're the dominate. Yes, it doesn't say the person who's strong is the one who is on top and holds everybody else down. Right. It's about, it's an internal, this is about internal strength. But somebody who's strong doesn't need to. Someone who's grounded and strong, yes, in theory, with a good strong sense of self, a good self-image, doesn't need to be always putting other people down, in, in theory, yes, yeah, Steve. Someone with self-control is a strong person. Self-control, it, it, exactly. You know, it's about self-control. It's and it's interesting because the, in the the rabbinic mind, um, first of all, it, it's Kovesh Yetzro, the Yetzer, your your inclination, and and most of you know, one of the great um, concepts of the rabbinic period is the idea that each of us has two yetzers, two inclinations, a yetzer tov and a yetzer ra, a good and evil inclination in us. That it's our version of the little devil and angel sitting on your shoulder kind of imagery. It's that we all have both of those. We all wrestle all the time. This is, in, you know, another way of looking at this is this is the Jewish version of there's a, there's a God and a devil. Literally, you know, so we don't believe that there are different deities. We're into, you know, Adonai Echad. We're into one God. We're into monotheism. So we took those ideas, in essence, and we internalized them. And we said, no, no, but each of us, in fact, does have our own things to wrestle with. We have our good parts and our not so good parts. We have our our passions that can lead us astray and our passions that can lead us to do the good and to do the right things. It's like, you know, the metaphor is the flame. You know, a flame can either burn the place down or cook your food or bring you warmth when you're cold 
You know, it's just a flame. It's, to, it's why you use it that matters. It's not the flame. Flame isn't good or bad. But And, and in a sense, we have passions. How, what we do with them, how we direct them, how we control them determines who we are, who we are with other people. Look, you know, when I'm talking with bar mitzvah kids and bat mitzvah kids, which fortunately I'm hardly ever doing anymore, but uh, only because, not because it's unfortunate, only because now I... Never mind. Um, <laughs> couldn't get out of that gracefully, so I'll just stop. Uh, I am doing bar mitzvah, and bar mitzvah is March 25th. So, um, in any event, one of the things that I always talked about bar and bat mitzvah kids about was what does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be an adult? Because obviously that's the symbolism of having a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah. You know, today I am a man, today I'm a woman, today I'm an adult. Well, what does that mean? Is that about your age? <clears throat> you know, it's not really about that. And for me, it was always being an adult <coughs> is that moment when you are willing to accept responsibility for the consequences of your own actions. You know, and not say it's someone else's fault. He did it, she did it, my mother made me do it, my father, it's his fault, and whatever. It's always somebody's fault for some people. Always. You know, some people never grow up. That's the reality in life. No, I'm not getting political, but some people never, never grow up. That's, that's just the reality, no matter how old they are. And other people, you know, at all kinds of ages get it, get their own sense of responsibility. So, and all of us have passions that can either be controllable or uncontrollable. You know, um, an urge for power, an urge to control, an urge to where we, what we, how do we channel our fears? What do we do with our fears and our anxieties? And when I'm talking with 13-year-olds uh, and talking to them about this, they all have their own hormones raging and their own passions and their own stuff. And and part of what growing up is always, what do you do with those emotions and those feelings? And how, what does it take to control them? What does it take to make choices and let your brain your mind control your body and not your body control your mind. Because that's clearly, in the context of the Mishnah, clearly what the rabbis are talking about. They're talking about sex. They're talking about sexual energy. They have a lot to say about sexual energy. Anyway, in, in rabbinic literature, <clears throat> you know, they, which they associate with the Yetzir Hara, with the evil inclination, interestingly enough, that the, the sexual urge is the evil inclination. It's not really good in good language, but it's... And they don't say sex is bad. They don't say sex is bad. No, I, they don't say sex is bad. That's why it's, it's, it's a bigger concept you sort of have to get. It's not that sex is bad. It's that sexual urges can be destructive. Duh. You know, sexual urges can hurt, can harm, can destroy lives and everything else. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you, you all know that. Um, it's thing on TV, I think, tonight about sexual slavery and enslavement and things like that. So so what we do with those, and, and it's also, they talk about it because it's the most um, common experience and passion that everybody wrestles with, their sexuality, what they do with their feelings about someone, you know. Um, and they're talking about several thousand years ago. I think it's bad for women now. Think about several thousand years ago. You know, when women were really objects, mostly, and really chattel, and really uh, possessions, and all that. <clears throat> and look at all the period pieces that are on TV. You know, and you watch, and you see what the lives are like of what it was like to be so vulnerable. It's not that vul- women are vulnerable always; they're vulnerable today in this world, let alone before, um, in the past. So, part of this is about literally that. 
And, and they have a, this little discussion in the Talmud about one day somebody captured the Yetzer Hara of the world, the evil, the sexual inclination of the world, and put it in prison so it couldn't run in the world, run wild in the world, as if that was going to be a good thing. We're going to capture it and put it away and lock it up. And then, of course, they say what happened was no egg was laid, nothing grew, nothing happened in the world. Because that energy, properly directed, is what is the energy of creativity and creation as well. So that's how the rabbi saw it. Yes, it can be destructive, but it's the source of all creativity and creation in the world. Sexuality, they weren't dumb, they knew. Sexuality is how people come about. This is the source of creativity, of generativity in the world. So our challenge is to wrestle with that and to recognize that self-control is often the hardest control there is. It's easier than controlling other people. You know, it's controlling yourself and your own passions. And that life is a balance. Like Life is this constant balance between the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Ra and trying to figure out which is which. What's the good and what's the, the destructive. is probably better than evil. Maybe that's even a better way of saying it. The destructive inclinations in all of us and how do we rein those in and channel them in a way that's positive. Yes, dear. It's a good question. How do we learn? <coughs> How do we learn that balance? Where do we learn, if we're lucky, <coughs> to control our passions in any event? How do we learn? It's, in a sense, the same question. How do you learn right from wrong? How do you know what's right? It's like, uh, you know, I created this thing this past year called Home Shalom, which is my little project to try to um, help uh, with issues of of uh, domestic violence and intimate partner abuse. Uh, and one of the things that I'm doing with my Home Shalom project is I'm underwriting healthy relationship workshops for teens. It's now the major thing that I'm doing. In fact, now I'm raising a little bit of money, and when I get it, I'm paying someone to, to do these uh, healthy relationship workshops for teens as a intimate partner violence prevention program, basically because I'm very conscious that with all the health things and stuff like that going on in the world and in some schools are treating, are dealing with these things, but most teenagers and middle school kids have no clue about what relationships are about and where are they going to learn and what's, what are boundaries and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And if you don't teach them what's an appropriate relationship, how to appropriately talk to, touch or not stand up for yourself, have these boundaries, how can you expect them to sort of magically know that any more than they ever have of how people learn things from the street or now from the internet. And God knows what you find on the internet when they're looking for, you know, how you're supposed to date someone or whatever it happens to be. In any event, I don't know, anybody want to respond to that? I think it comes from home. Your first relationships and you learn, you know, um, what's acceptable behavior. You learn, um, you know, Mirroring behaviors and uh, parameters and all sorts of things. Ultimately, there's no question that that Debbie's right. Next would be your 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 first 
your first level of learning about relationships is from the relationships that you see growing up, which ideally is your parents, if you have parents, um, and how they interact with each other and how they talk to each other and how they treat each other. You know, one of the other things that I tell bar and bat mitzvah kids is nobody knows what's going on inside your head. You have a rich life in your head that nobody else knows but you. You have all these feelings in your body. Nobody has a clue what's in there except for you. So all of this you that you live with is a mystery and a secret to everybody else. They only know you in two ways, by what you say and what you do. So to everybody outside of you, who you are literally is what you say and what you do. That's all. How else are they going to know? They don't know what's going on in there. So that's why you have to guard and watch so carefully what you say and what you do, because all the other stuff that you're thinking about all the time that you know is you, nobody else knows. That's the only part that you show to the world. That's the only part that they know. That's how you're defined. But we, we grow up, you know, it's the challenge, one of the great depressing challenges of parenthood, frankly, is that, you know, your kids are always watching you even when they're, you know, in the other room somehow. And you can't tell your child, okay, pay attention to me on Monday, but don't pay any attention to what I do on Tuesday. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And the other big clinker in all of this really is that you may act exactly the same and have two different kids who grow up totally differently. And you may be exactly the same because you can't control how they interpret what they see and what they hear from you, which goes into their own psychology and their own... I mean, that's... you. Anybody has more than one kid knows that. Go, Oops, how'd that happen? When they're 50... <clears throat> No, no, you just wish they would be watching you when they're 50. Yeah, they're kind of cooked when they're 50. It's a challenge. Then they have to join this synagogue and come to these classes, and then we'll teach them. Okay, so more with Benzoma, because I love Benzoma. This is like the best. We can just stop with this. So then he gets to Ezehu Ashir, who is rich, who is wealthy. And in another one of the most famous phrases from the Talmud, Hasameach Bechelko. Excuse my coughing again. <clears throat> Literally means one who is rejoices or joyful in his lot, his portion, <clears throat> his chalak, his portion. What does that mean? Happy with what you have. Appreciation. Appreciation. Gratitude. But also there are people who never have enough. They have a hunger that can never, <clears throat> right. ever be satisfied. You look at people who have, you know, X number of billion dollars and yet are unhappy and they're looking for the extra billion. Yeah, it's not about how much. It's never about how much, because how much is a is a slippery definition that is yours. It's your definition. There is no objective how much. When is enough enough? You know? It's a game. Yeah. It, and that's level. You know, it's, 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 it's not about the money. But it's endless. So, and, it's it, endless. and it can be exactly endless, which is why... Benzoma intelligently says, you're, you're wealthy, you're rich when you appreciate what you have, whatever that is, at whatever level that is. It's not about how much that is. And, um, and we all know exactly the example that, you know, Bert suggested and everybody else that 
There are so many who, for whom acquiring is the game and, you know, or trying to beat out your next door neighbor or your college roommate or whoever it happens to be and have more and more and win is enough enough. And for many, many people in every aspect of their life, there's no such thing as enough. It's never enough. Um, and therefore, they're always unhappy. So the point is, Sameach is in this, that is happiness. Who's rich is the one who achieves a sense of happiness from what they've got. a responsibility that each one of us has to be happy? Isn't that a Talmudic? Uh, it's, it is, um, yes, it is, in fact, what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to celebrate life and enjoy life and be happy in life and be uh, happy with who we are and be happy with what we have. But they also were smart enough to recognize that doesn't happen for probably most people. I'll just say it. Most people, uh, you know... Look, when you, all of those studies, all of those happiness studies in the world, of which there are many, uh, about the different countries and which people in which countries are the happiest countries, we are never at the top of that list. <clears throat> we are way down on that list always. There are always countries like Denmark <clears throat> and, you know, Israel's pretty high, <clears throat> which is crazy, of course. Those of us who know Israel would go, what do they have to be happy about? But in fact, you know, that's why attitude is everything in life. It's not about how much you have. Attitude is everything. And, but the wealthiest countries usually are lower down on the list than much poorer countries in terms of the happiness, you know, index. index. And, yeah? Is this, uh, in the Hebrew, is this material? Is this talking about material things? What about... Uh, your lot in life, which is not material. So, for example, uh, you know, Faust, the, the deal with the devil is uh, at some point you're going to say, I wish this moment would last forever, and you never get there because you're always, being a human being, you always want something different. But those aren't all about things. They're about experiences. Good question. And literally, the this phrase, Ezehu, Ashir Hasameach Bechelko, who is wealthy or who is rich, uh, the one who rejoices in his portion, doesn't have to be about money or physical things at all. You know, what's your lot in life? You know, who who is happy and satisfied with his, or in our case, his and her lot in life can be all of those non-physical things with whether you have a relationship that nurtures you or not, whether you have a family that is a happy family or not, whether you have all of the, uh, you know, whether you have work that feeds you and nourishes you and satisfies you or not, all of those things are your chalik. All of those things are your portion of your life. And therefore, clearly, happiness comes from being happy about those things in your life or not. Dissatisfaction in any or all of those areas clearly means you're not a happy guy. You know, you're not going to be a happy person when you're unhappy about the, your portion, about the things. And but, but also, let's remember, life is not black and white. Life is not either or. Life is always complicated and messy. 
you know, and we're always a little of all of it. And some of our lives, maybe this part's really great, this part sucks, but this part is so good. And part of what we have to do is focus on the parts that work. The chalak, the part of our life that is the part that's working for us. And know that, you know, nobody ever gets to all tens in all of the different categories of your life. This follows the pattern. There's a pattern here where each one is answered to the question is pretty much the opposite of what most people would say. You know, who's wise, not the smartest one, but the person who... One who learns from other people. Who is strong, not the person who dominates others. But here, who is rich, not the person with the most money. Right. Or the most anything. Or the most anything. It could be the person with the most money. It could be if that person is happy with that. Yes, it could be. That's not, that's not what it's about. But it's not about that. Where's the next one? That person's on the same category as anybody else in potential. And yes. And the last one, which is who is honored. Who is honored, and, they, and his Benzoma's answer is the one who honors others. That's what brings you honor, is honoring others. Someone had a hand up, and I... What, yes. What, what, about, what about the kid, the young adult, who watches video games all day and eats Cheetos. Never you have something against Cheetos? Wait a minute. Is there a story? Yeah, because he doesn't have ambition. See, that's the problem. If you're, if you're ambitious, yes. you, you have... You grow up to be a Jeff Bezos one. Right. Huh? Nurture that child. <laughs> but, you, but if you're ambitious, it means you want more than what... In some way, yes. things, but you want to achieve something that you haven't achieved. So here's the question. Can you be ambitious and in a constant state of evolution and growth and still be happy with your portion? Or are those automatically contradictory and, and impossible at the same time? To, to me, the difference that we're talking about here in all of these questions is internal versus external. Mm that your judgments about yourself come from internal, not from external things like wealth or whatever. Um, right. But it's how you feel about your connection to the world. Yeah, I love that. See, I mean, I haven't done, Ben Zoma's on my top ten, one of my top ten, because uh, this to me is something I think about all the time. I've always thought about, when I think about Talmudic wisdom, this, this is one of the things that always comes up because there's so many times in life where, and they're such simple question and answer things, so many times in life when the issue of are you happy with what you've got? Are you some act by, you know, where is your happiness going to come from? What's going to be the determiner of your happiness? Because that's up to every one of us. It's up to you. And, you know, I can't determine what's going to make you happy, right? So you have to determine what's going to make me happy is I'm going to write a novel. Okay, and then I can't make you write the novel if you're going to do that either. I can't do any of those things. It's it's totally internal, and and and, and whether that's you know, and then you're writing this novel and you write it and you go, well, I wasn't as good as it could have been, or maybe I should have this, or maybe I should have that, because people are off, off most of the time not satisfied with their own work most of the time and go, well, gee, maybe I should have this, or maybe I should have written that, or maybe I should have done this, and that's part of our, to me, that's part of the strength of conquering your urges because one of our inclinations is self-deprecation and uh, one of our negative urges in life is I'm not good enough I'm not this I'm not this I'm not this I'm not that and and then therefore never being satisfied in a healthy way with your accomplishments 
yeah, I did this, but I didn't do that. I got an 8 out of 10, but I didn't get 10 out of 10. You know, it's all the kids who come home with an A minus and go, you got an A minus? You know, kind of on all your things, you got an A minus? What happened to the 4.2? You know, whatever. All those things that are the reality of human life. And, and remembering, for me, this is like a, I put this on my mirror or something. I don't, but because I have it in my mind all the time. To remind myself of that I am the arbiter of my own happiness and my own wealth and whether I feel okay or not about who I am, what I'm doing, and what I have in all the different aspects of my life, that it's up to me to, to do, make those choices. Yeah. Fred. Now, thinking about this, if you're somebody living in poverty, yes, is this encouraging you to be happy living in poverty, or is this, in other words, uh, is it is it a demotivator? Is this is, <clears throat> well? It's not necessarily a demotivator, but is let's say somebody gave me this and I'm living in poverty. They tell me, all right, you will be rich if you're happy with your with what you have. Yes. Um, I think somehow I would feel angry a little bit. Well, it depends on who's telling you that. (laughs) If I'm coming in a lot richer than you and going, you know what, Fred? (laughs) You you could feel rich if you just keep yourself down here and don't try to be like me. That's one thing. Um, You know, and what's the reason that, look, what's the reason that poorer countries tend to have a happier, score higher on the happiness index? It's because they don't have the expectations that we have of poor people in this country who turn on the television every day or have on their phones every day and see the Kardashians as the way of life or, you know, whatever. It's about the how you compare yourself to the people around you that so often determines your sense of happiness or not. Well, this is Abe Lincoln, this is, you know, they had the saying... Supposedly, yes. I figure most people uh, are about as happy as they as they, as they choose to be. Yeah, as they, mm-hmm. yes. It's pretty much the same for any of but, us. But it is that. I've, I've been in places in Africa where people were very, very, very poor, and yet still there's a lot of joy. There are right. people who live great lives. Yes. And no matter how rich you are, mm-hmm. there's always somebody richer. There's always somebody poorer. Yeah, and. I happen to be a geek about reading all these happiness studies and things like that. Um, and it seems that so often the, no- the notions are community. Right. And whether you're isolated or whether you have a supportive community. Correct. Um, and it is your attitude. Yeah. And those are the things that you can control and make differences in. Yeah. Now, I just have so many expectations. Yes, expectations. And that, to me, I, I used to be a yoga fanatic. And one of the things that uh, my teacher would always say is no expectation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i not a good student. But <laughs> I really try. <clears throat> because yeah. I think when you set yourself up for this is how it's supposed to be, right. or this is how these people were supposed to be, or this is what I'm supposed to have, then you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for you know, just disappointment. Look, I, you can come to it with no expectations and just you're breathing. Right. That's why yoga's so good. I'm big on breathing. Look, I, I mean, that's your life. Yes. And isn't 
Well, that's that's why Jewish tradition starts you off with those morning blessings. You wake up in the morning, you go, thank you, God, I woke up, essentially. You know, here I am. Everything else is gravy after this. I I open my eyes and here I am. You know, and if you can get to that, where you actually feel that, that's the best way. So, you know, that's why, I mean, I say all these blessings in the morning, every morning, because I want to train myself still every day to be grateful, to see the world first through grateful lenses. And then I encounter all the crap that I may encounter in the world. But if I start that way, that's a hell of a lot better than starting out grumbling, you know, right? So I do that. So, I mean, I mentioned I was teaching this thing today. So uh, I was telling a couple people. It's a part of a week-long um, elder hostel program that the American Jewish University is running at Brandeis the Rhodes Scholar Program. Um, and the whole week is about U.S. presidents and the Jews. And I ended up being asked to do it because somebody, a couple months ago, because somebody I know was supposed to do it and couldn't make it. And he called me up and said, I have to, I'm supposed to teach this thing. Would you teach it for me? And I said, sure. Knowing nothing about the subject, I said, sure. So I had a couple months to prepare, so it wasn't any big deal. So I prepared, and, and I'm doing, it turned out I'm, I'm the opening and I'm the closing of the week. Turned out, I opened this morning with the, uh, the introduction and at the end of, on Friday morning, I'm the closer. I'm talking about Wilson and whatever. Anyway, and Lincoln. Uh, I had more anxiety about showing up and teaching this class today than I have had in years. For weeks, I have had, because I saw who the other people were. Rafe Sonnenschein, David Berenbaum, you know, are, are there all these, Michael Berenbaum, there are all these people who are real scholars in their fields, professors and whatever, and me. (laughs) My mother kept telling me that all week, honey, you'll be fine. My wife kept saying, what are you talking about? You know, get up and you can just talk, whatever. You know, and it's true, and it was all true, and I had a great time, and it was all fine this morning. But I was so conscious of how much anxiety I had, not feeling that I was at the intellectual level the scholarly level of everybody else who's lecturing all week, who are all scholars. I'm the only rabbi who's not a rabbi scholar person doing it. You know, I have my own strengths, obviously, which are different. Um, But I was so conscious of here I am. I'm 68 years old. I'm a successful person. I'm a good rabbi. been a successful rabbi. I can do... I can do this. I'm actually my own kind of a scholar. I'm in the middle of writing this book for Jewish Publication Society. That's you know, and yet it's so easy to go, oh my God, who am I? You know, and it's just, you know, it's like all of whatever's built into us, or me anyway, um, where, are, where do our insecurities come from? Where do those things come from? How are we measuring ourselves? Who are we measuring ourselves against? What I yeah, yeah, that's what made me think about it. You know, the expectations of how am I going to, what do I have to achieve to make it work, to be whatever. And you may have fit, and you may have fit in beautifully, but if your, ex, if your right. expectations were higher than, mm-hmm. than what you know, your presentation was, right. then you went away with yeah. frustration, and it all fits into this whole thing, and this whole point that so, Exactly. <clears throat> and where does it come from? And it doesn't come from any of these external things. No. It comes from this sense of satisfaction at, at who you are. Or as you once said, when is good enough? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Good enough. What I 
what I've come to realize with day-to-day activities and what I do yeah. is that um, nothing's perfect in this world. And if I set my expectations too high, then there's going to be um, activities and events during the day that are going to frustrate me. Yeah. And cause me to self-deprecate and criticize. But if I take the attitude that if 10% of the things during the, the day that are going to confront me, whether it's events or that um, that's the norm, if 90% of what occurs during that day is good, then it's a fabulous day, and that should be happening. It's a good attitude. Besides, all the studies about uh, seem that I read yeah. years ago clearly showed that 90% of the things that people worry about never happen. So the things that happen are things you don't worry about because you didn't expect them. So it's too silly to worry about all these things because they're not going to happen. The repetitive thoughts yes. that keep going through your head. Right. So that's what my Ben, I like uh, Ben Zoma. He's a good guy. So, number two, look at that. Ben Azai. So Ben Azai teaches, I like this one too. This is one of those... <clears throat> Anyway, run to do a minor mitzvah and away from transgression, for one mitzvah leads to another. So another famous phrase from the Talmud, mitzvah, goreret mitzvah, and avera, goreret avera, with the might songs about it. One mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, and one transgression leads to another transgression. And then he says, scharan, uh, mitzvah, is mitzvah. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah. And the consequence of sin is the sin, is the transgression. So, what's this? What does it mean? Why? I mean, why? Why run to do a minor mitzvah? What does that mean? Why that? If you're running even to do a minor mitzvah, it inspires you to be on the road if you want to mitzvot. Whereas if you go in the other direction, they kind of build one on the other. You start sinning, and then there's another bad thing, and another bad thing. They're like yes. it, they're like different roads, and I think the idea. Which road do you want to go down? Right, which road do you, right? And even a small nice thing gets you on that road. Yes. And gets you going in that direction. Yeah, it's minor because people too often think, okay, i got to do something really big. <laughs> you know, and I, I can't, I'm not going to pay attention to the little things. Where, where, where's the big thing I have to do? And of course, in other parts of the Talmud, they intelligently say, run to do a minor mitzvah as much as a major mitzvah, because who's to say which is minor and which is major? Because in fact, in life, you never know what the minor and what the major is in life. You know, yeah? The reward of the mitzvah is also the mitzvah, meaning the reward is not someone else acknowledging that. Ah. And it's the fact that it's back to the internal and what side of you are you feeding? Are you feeding the mitzvah side or are you feeding the sin side? As long as you keep feeding the mitzvah side, that's what you keep doing. And you do it because of the act of doing it and the act of gratitude to be able to do it as opposed to somebody else saying, well, thank you. And for Ben Asa, it's even a, it's even bigger than that in the sense that the reward for the mitzvah isn't God giving you some reward. It's not I'm doing this because there's, you know, there'll be pie in the sky by and by, that, that I'm doing this because these are mitzvot commandments from God, so if I do them, I'm going to get some, like, eternal reward. It's heaven. I'm going to get into heaven, <clears throat> which that, it's, it's you do it for its own sake. That the experience of doing it, whether you get the acknowledgement or whether you don't, whether you get, whether there's anything beyond the helping, 
You help someone because in the helping is its own reward for for you. Yeah, Fred. And also, give me the impression that what it's really saying is it's not how far, how far you go; it's what direction you go. Yes. Yes. Well, that's the the and the idea that that what you do nothing happens in isolation. When it says mitzvah goreret mitzvah. It literally means one mitzvah pulls another after it. Gorera is this kind of interesting Hebrew word that means like, like you're grabbing on and pulling it afterwards, like someone pulling. One mitzvah hauls another one after it, and an avera does the same thing, and the transgression does the same thing. You know, the, the, there's no such thing as just a mitzvah. It's connected because it, it's, it's kind of back to, um, the question in the Torah about the Pharaoh. You know, famous ethical dilemma about the Pharaoh that uh, Pharaoh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh ten times and says, let my people go. And it says in the Torah, you know, what Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he said no. And that happens ten times and the first number of times it says that Pharaoh's heart was, Pharaoh hardened his heart and then it starts saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses came and said, let the people go, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh said no. So then ultimately the ethical dilemma is, so how, why are you blaming Pharaoh if it literally says in the Torah, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what else can, what can he do? All he had to do was say, it's not my fault. You know, God made me do it, essentially. It literally says that in the, in the Torah a number of times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the rabbis who raised the problem in the first place, of course, only raise it because they figure out an answer to it. And their own answer to it is, no, no, no. It's all God had to do, <coughs> quote, <coughs> to harden Pharaoh's heart was let Pharaoh have his own natural inclination continue. Because as it says in the beginning, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He took this step and therefore he kept going down this path so that they say in the Talmud, a man is led by the way he wishes to follow. That's Of course. Absolutely. Yes, the whole the whole Exodus story is an arm wrestling contest between our God, the real God, and the fake God, the fake news, the fake God, who is Pharaoh. And that whole drama of the ten plagues and all that was to show that the invisible God, who is our God, is bigger and badder and meaner than the real God, and Pharaoh was the only the pretend God, even though they all thought that Pharaoh was the real God because he was a person in flesh and blood. But the point was, and you could argue with it because we don't, may not like their logic, they thought that what was hinted at in the Torah was our own inclinations, our own choices, then lead us to the next choice, that lead us to the next choice. So you want to have go down the mitzvah path and not the avera path because one mitzvah brings another, brings another, brings another, and one avera is going to lead you down the wrong direction. I look at this a little more simplistic than that's kind of and transgressions. It's positive and negative. Ah. Uh-huh. If you do positive create positive energy or negative energy. Yeah. <clears throat> Bless you. Yeah. I mean isn't another way to interpret that is that the uh, thing about the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. It's the Pharaoh's God that hardened his heart. And he's battling with, it's 
the the correct God right. is battling against the God of the, the, the Egypt God. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could. Certainly, that's part that that is one of the underlying messages, because the Egyptians had a whole bunch of gods. Don't forget, <clears throat> which is how we ended up with the golden calf a little later, because we missed those physical god symbols, symbols of God's presence. <coughs> they obviously didn't really think they created a god by making a golden calf. They just made it. You know, they're not dumb, but but they made. They made a, an opportunity for God to show up for them. Is really what they wanted. They had those symbols, those images, were like, you know, to attract the God energy to show up for them. And they felt abandoned out in the middle of nowhere. So they did what they were used to from the old country, which was now Egypt, where they had all these images of of animals and things and birds that were God images. And Moses wasn't around anymore, so they made something solid and strong that, that they thought was going to work. But, but here we are. This is also one of the fundamental ethical principles in the sense of uh, rules of Jewish life, which is that mitzvah go rare at mitzvah, that one mitzvah brings another, and that the way for you to lead the right kind of life is to start with any minor mitzvah. Start with, and don't worry about the big things, because if you're always, if you're waiting for the big opportunities, you're going to wait your whole life. You know, well, that's not big enough. That was unimportant enough. That was not this enough. That was not, you know, that's why it says run to do the minor. Because anybody can do a little. It's, you know, good enough. Just be, do it good enough. It also says run to do the minor. It doesn't say do the minor. Yes. So there's a sense that... Ur- there's a sense of urgency oh, right. here. Because if you don't start, you'll never start. Right. You know, it's the first thing. So you don't just... You're gonna, I love this. You're going to write your novel. So you're, it's, it's all about Debbie. You're going to write... You're going to write your novel. You could sit there and think, well, how do I start? I'm never going to start. You know, I got to find exactly the right opening sentence. Otherwise, you know, because that opening sentence is so important. Everybody, you start by starting, you know, like with anything else. You change it later, but you got to start. It's like starting anything. You got to, you got to take the first step. So it's, it's, it's that kind of motivation. He also used to say, same, that's Ben Azai. Still. Oh, yes. Always non-political. Scorn no one and mock nothing. Unless you're the President of the United States. No. For no one is without her hour, and no thing is without its place. I put the her in, but um, since they were sexist in the Mishnah. But I, I love this one, too. It's interesting, because I want you to see how it's connected to to number two, this number three. He would say, scorn no one and mock nothing, because no one is without their hour, and no thing is without its place. What, what do you think that... What, what's he saying? Even, you don't know, and even the smallest thing can be okay. Okay. What else? Don't mock things. Don't. That also. Everybody, you never know what people carry But this is really not focusing on the the person doing the scoring. No. It says. The reason is not because you might be living in a glass house, but it's because that person, no matter who it is, has some value. The, the kid who's in the basement playing with the video games, don't mock, don't mock that kid because that kid's going to end up being, you know, Jeff Bezos or one of those guys, right? Someday, maybe. You don't know. Or inventing something or, you know, curing cancer or doing whatever. All these, all of us 
all the story of civilization is the story of people scorned who ended up doing something that you know of value. I guess I take issue with this because I don't think we should scorn anything. Anyway, of whether they're going to be of value. Right, but you shouldn't. Of course. Because it's about you, not about. For its own sake. Yeah. You shouldn't scorn someone right. or mock someone. Right. True. But that, you do have the right to judge. I mean, there are some things that are. Well, things bad. are things are bad. You can judge people. One has the, yeah. I mean, we think that this word judgmental all of a sudden became a dirty word. Well, you're supposed to ju- do the right thing. But, but yeah, that there are some. It's not okay to steal. It's not okay to. We got ten commandments to start out with. So you know. And the mock is it? Is it? it in Hebrew. Yeah, it's, it, words, is it? it's scorn and make fun of. It's fun. it's it's mock is like don't don't it's denigrate, make fun of. Both of them are different versions of not taking of yeah of ignoring, not taking seriously, of uh, you know think belittling. One is belittling, disrespecting, and all of those are all pieces of what this is. And the the bottom the. The punchline of it is that everybody has its, everything has its hour and every person has its hour, um, and everything has its place is don't think that you know. Don't have the arrogance to think, oh, this person, look at her. This guy, look at him. You know, he's a bum. She's a whatever. You know, it's just a housewife. He's just a, you know, no good Nick. He's whatever. Because everybody has their own inherent value and worth, is what what Benazai is saying. Whether you see it or not, doesn't make it so. Everybody has its time. Everything has its time, and everybody has its worth. Yeah, Carol. Speaking about judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. There's another. I think it's Hillel who said, "Don't judge anybody until you've stood in their place." Yes. Yeah, every religion's got their version of that, walking in their moccasins and all that. Come out, don't judge another, your friend, until you've stood in his place, literally. That <clears throat> it should only be that that's how we treat other people. Um, Stephen, yeah. It's just like a, the word that comes to mind is ridicule. Don't, don't right. ridicule other people. You see a homeless person apparently drunk on the sidewalk. You don't know what that person has going on. Right. How they got there? Yeah. You see them as a baby? I do. I think, you know, a newborn. And I think, oh my God, you know, what happened to that? Right. From there to there. Somebody's child? Somebody's child. Everyone is someone's child. Yes. Yeah, it's humbling, actually. It's a beautiful thing to say because it's also humbling in, in the sense of making us have humility that we, you know, as you said, you have, you have no idea what this person's been through to end up wherever they are. And you don't even know where they are. You only know what they look like they are also. You know, what, where they are this moment that you happen to encounter them, which, you know, could be a, a part of a whole long journey of their life going who knows where and how they got there. <clears throat> which segues into the... Hmm? It's compassion. Yeah, it's about compassion. Totally segues into Which segues into... Rabbi Levitas of Yavne, who teaches, be increasingly humble of spirit for all the aspirations of humankind ends in the worm. <laughs> what does he mean by that? Means As you grow older, you get closer. You get wormier. By worms. Yes. 
Yeah, they're. You should get increasingly humble. Yeah, the rabbis are real big on pointing out that you know, you're. In fact, one of the. I think it was last last session. Yeah. You. Uh, where does human being come from? It begins with a fetid drop of sperm and ends with worms. You know, that's ends being eaten by worms. It's like, so don't think so highly of yourself. Because really, humility is is one of the qualities that's constantly referred to in rabbinic literature. Uh, you know, Moses obviously was held up as the greatest leader in the Jew, of Jewish history, and his greatest quality was his humility, which was, uh, according to the rabbis, that in spite of the fact that he was, you know, the head honcho and the CEO and the, the most important and powerful guy in the world, to the Jews, he was still the most humble person also. <clears throat> because cultivating humility is challenging. You know, cult, and it's something that you, you know, some people, I guess, come by it naturally. They're just naturally humble. And some of us has to, have to work at it, you know, of constantly reminding ourselves uh, of our own, the reality of life, of who we are. Yes, and it certainly does that. But it's humility. Yeah. It's humility, not self-hatred. No, no, it's not self-hatred at all. It's not putting yourself down. It's recognizing that it's, you know, the reality of your life, where you fit into the scheme of things and in the world, um, with all your talents and all your abilities, still to be to be humble. Humility versus er- versus all, arrogance. Hmm? In Jewish tradition, we all end up being buried in a pine coffin. Yeah. You know, we, we end up, you know, it was, it, we end up allegedly the Jewish burial um, traditions are from that same root, the notion of no matter how rich you are, you, uh, you know, you, or how poor you are, we all end up in the same. We all end up in the ground. Well, not everybody ends up in the ground anymore, but in theory, we all end up in the ground <clears throat> and we're all equal. In, in that. In fact, it was a conscious decision of the rabbis in the Talmudic period to say Jews should all be buried in shrouds, actually, and in plain shrouds, so that uh, you can't tell the difference between who's rich and who's not, which is not the same in every culture, obviously, um, because we're all that sense of equality in, in the eyes of God. We're all the same children of God. So, Rabbi Yochana ben Baraka says, even if you desecrate the name, that's obviously God, in secret, your punishment will be public. Intentionally or not, it is the same in the end. What does he mean by that? What do you think he believed when he said that? Even if you (coughs) desecrate God's name, that's what he's talking about, in secret, the consequences, your punishment will be in public. I mean doesn't sound like anything anybody in the room would say. What do you think he means? And why is he saying that? Yeah. yeah. It has to do with the power of your thoughts. And the fact that whether it is private or not, if you, it, it, it impacts you if you're thinking, whether it's desecration, whether it's negativity, whatever it is, that has power in taking Yeah, I like that. Desecrating the name. Yeah. Not like what we call the name. Yes. But is, isn't that related? Hilul Hashem. Right, right. Hilul Hashem. It's well, somehow bringing disgrace upon... Yes. What, what does it mean to desecrate the name? So let's go back to that. In different eras in Jewish life, it meant different things. It's obviously... Um, it is 
in, in this era, it was in, in uh, two things. One was acting in such a way as to bring shame upon God. It's the same reason that one of the Ten Commandments is don't take God's name in vain, but literally what it means is don't swear by God's name when you're lying. You know, don't put your hand in the Bible and say, so help me God, she did it, when you know she didn't do it. Because what you're doing is you're diminishing God's name by using God's name as your... Um, your surety, what do you call that? Well, you're diminishing yourself, but they were they were concerned about that the how God, the Jewish version of God, understanding of God, is seen in the world. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know how many of you had parents who said, now just remember when you go out in the world, you're representing our family, you know, so make us proud, honey, go out there and make us proud. You know, it's like my parents, how they read the newspaper. Jewish, 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 Jewish. You know, thank God he's not Jewish. Thank God he's not Oh my God, he's Jewish. Right? I mean, that's how they read the newspaper. That's how they saw the world. So, right, exactly. It's exactly that. Oh my God. Why is it always someone Jewish who they put like this? Why does it have to be someone Jewish? Right? It's like as if that person's actions reflect on the community, all of us. And, and so too with how what we as the Jewish people taught about God. Here are our Ten Commandments, here is our mitzvot, here is our Jewish way of life, our entire Jewish civilization, which is a minority civilization in the world. Therefore, we want people to act in such a way that they elevate God's name and not desecrate God's name by how they act. We want to act in such a way, the rabbis believed, what they wanted you to do was act in such a way that people outside of you would go, wait a minute, what's your religion? Because I want to be like you. So what? that must be cool. That religion must be good. That God must be good. I'm doing this because, well, why are you doing that? I'm doing it because it's a mitzvah. My God commands me to act this way. Oh, well, I want to check this God out because I like the way you're acting. You know, as opposed to <clears throat> the opposite. Acting in such a way, it was like, I sure don't want to be a part of that religion because look at what this guy's like. And, and that's what they're talking about. Because <clears throat> we were, I mean, in, in their minds, God chose... Yes, we were chosen. God chose Israel to be a special people. And so, so we have a special relationship with God. If, something bad reflects on if, it reflects on God. Yes, it does, 100%. What does this say about God? Uh, it... You don't, it's not your, you don't get to vote. <laughs> it's not about whether you believe. It's about what people believe about you. And the group that you're a part, you're associated with. It's not about your believing that God gave you this mitzvah to do or not. It's about how I look at you and go, this guy's Jewish. So, what he does is a representation of what Jews do. And what Judaism is, must be about, because I'm going to look at him. Is he good? Is he bad? Is he righteous? Is he uh, evil? Is he this? He re- represents that community, because Judaism is not about individuals or individual salvation. Judaism is a communitarian religious civilization. And, and it's about the collective. It's about belonging. That's why we're always saying, what gives us identity is not belief, but belonging. Nobody cares what you believe. 
But if you're a part of the group, if you belong, identify as belonging to the group, then what you do reflects on the group and on the group's mores and on the group's uh, teachings. Whether you believe every single one of those teachings or not, that you don't, that's why I say you don't get a vote. You don't get to vote on that. You automatically are associated with the group as soon as you say, I'm, I'm part of the group. Yeah. I mean, if the first four of these have nothing to do with God, they have nothing to do with... The right, they so to speak. Philosophical deep points about how to live your life in a happy way. This well, they, they work whether they have anything to do with God or not. And this fifth one is really beginning to be like magic. You know, even if you do this, even if you eat pork off by yourself and nobody sees it, somehow something is going to come down and touch <clears throat> you, and that... Okay, so I'll give you a different way of looking at it because it, you could it could be that it, if you took it literally that way, it, you could read it that way. I read it a different way. I read just like the mitzvah goreret mitzvah and avera goreret avera that one mitzvah leads to another down the right path, or you go down the wrong path. Even if you're screwing up in secret, you end up in public, being exposed in public. Not that you ate pork but that you stole from somebody, that you lied to somebody, that you start yourself down the path of, if you're on the path of doing of a transgressions, even in secret, it doesn't matter. It's identity formation and it's ethical value formation and by the choices you're making. So even if you start doing them in private, it's not that God's going to look at you and punish you you're going to get exposed in public because you're going to end up being the guy who gets arrested because you can't, you've taken yourself down the path and now you're being busted for insider trading. It's, it's more that, as I read it. But it's, literally, it's, yes, the way you said it. How do you read intentionally or not? Ah. How do you read it? I, I, I don't get that. If you steal from somebody, you lie to somebody, you report well, they were very big about consciousness and making run to do a minor mitzvah on purpose. So it's not an excuse to say, oh, I didn't mean to be doing that. I would, you know, I was just, just got in the habit of doing a little of this, a little of that. I didn't think it was going to end up all the way over here when I started all the way over there with a little thing. In that sense, intentionally or not. It's not that my intention is to defraud the world. Okay, I did a little. Because my boss doesn't really care because he's got so much more money than I do anyway. You know, a little from the till. It wasn't that I was planning on robbing the bank. In all that, yeah, Steve. I, I, I can't accept that. I mean, the fact that it's okay. far be it for me to say that I accept uh, <laughs> the word of high above. But, but to say the way I see this, it says make a mistake and do something unintentionally, you're going to be treated the same way as if you do it intentionally. And that runs so counter because of what I do. Isn't there a saying, if you do and you don't know, it's okay, but if you know and you do it anyway, then but this doesn't seem to make that excuse. It says intentionally or not. Right. Well, you know, you don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. It's in the Talmud. No, definitely didn't make my top ten. You don't have to like it. And the reality is that um, I don't know. I don't know what he meant. 
I mean, really, I don't literally know what he meant, except for what I think he meant had to do with with <coughs> the similar to the other themes of this chapter <coughs> in a vote is the it's a it's better to choose your path than to allow yourself to find yourself along a path unintentionally that you didn't pay attention to. It's better to choose the righteous path on purpose, to be conscious of what you're doing, than to start with little transgressions, thinking in secret, thinking they don't matter, and suddenly finding yourself being a different person than you thought you were going to be. And it couldn't have nothing to do with that. That's how I read things. So counter, I mean, I know that came first, but runs completely counter to our modern criminal justice. No, don't, don't we have unintentional, I mean, if... If you run somebody over, even if you didn't intend to, but you have first degree well, murder, second degree Right, that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. So it's well, there. But, it's, but you're treated differently. If you would right. run no. over, you're treated far more harshly. Of course. Who was distracted yeah. by uh, a kid screaming, turns around, and hit somebody. Right. Slight right. years differences but, as far as the way it's treated. But the, the, the way this is. Seem to make that distinction. The way this is written, you could imagine somebody from Issus. Saying it. Okay. Good time to move on then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That's why I said you don't have to like it. I just left them all in. This is the whole chapter of chapter four. I put it in there. Okay. We're running out of time. Rabbi, where are we? Ishmael? Ishmael. We'll get to something Torah-ish. If you study Torah in order to teach Torah, you'll be given the means to study and teach. If you study Torah to practice Torah, you'll be given the means to study, teach, observe, and practice. Not to spend a lot of time on it, but what's he what's he saying, do you think? If you immerse yourself Actions and, speak louder than words. you will become, you will reap what you sow. If you just want to teach and not be immersed, then that's another problem. It's the difference between talking about and doing mm-hmm. here, really. It's wonderful to be a teacher, but if all you're doing is, t- your only concern is is teaching, then you're not in the real world. You're just teaching the ideas. But if you're, if, you know, if, if the purpose of your teaching is to change behavior, is to act in such a way as to be the right kind of person, which is really the whole purpose of Torah anyway, is to be the right kind of person, then you have the opportunity to actually be that person. Yes, dear. While you're talking about that, I was thinking about Bernie Mayo. I knew he was saying the wrong thing, and a lot of people, I think some of the family know, but wasn't good for the Jews. <laughs> Definitely not good for the Jews. You know, sociopaths are sociopaths, and he was clearly one. Fed into every stereotype. Yes, he certainly wasn't that lovely. It was like, yeah, it was not good for the Jews. But he was a sociopath. He is, was, is, I guess. Um, and then Rabbi Tzadok, this is uh, not the only person who said that. Hillel said the same thing in an earlier chapter. Don't separate from the community. Don't act as your own lawyer. This is for you, Steve. Don't act as your own lawyer. Don't use Torah for self-aggrandizement, nor as a means for wealth or power. And then he quoted Hillel. As Hillel said, one who exploits Torah will fade away. Thus we know that using learning for personal gain and power removes you from the world. I know a lot of rabbis who are out of this world now. Hmm? Yeah, I know. So that's why I left it in. So let's see. 
Now, you know, it's so easy to look at how many clergy and how many people that uh, wrap themselves in sort of holier-than-thou cloth uh, are really there for their own self-aggrandizement and, you know, abusing the power to make money or do whatever, get power and money. That's part of it. Why do you think he threw in this phrase, do not act as your own lawyer? That's sort of different. A lawyer wrote that. <laughs> Rabbi Tzadok was a lawyer, yeah. Uh, uh, why, why do you think? Yeah, it does look like it stands out, right? What's what's not part of this thing? Don't separate yourself from the community. Don't act as your own lawyer. Don't use Torah for self-aggrandizement. Um, it really, um, it's back into the theme of or the the formula that the first three chapters mostly had the formula that everybody that all these rabbis that said something said it in threes. Mm. Don't do this, don't do that, and don't do that. Do this, do this, and do this. So, And I think this was part of the three. Don't separate from the community, don't act your own lawyer, and don't use the Torah for self-aggrandizement. Um, and they were all these things. They were teachers, they were lawyers, they were uh, judges and lawyers, um, and they were, um, uh, they were leaders in the community. So why do they choose to say things in threes? Because it was easy to remember. Because this all was oral originally. It was all oral tradition. And things in threes were, were mnemonically the easiest way to remember something. So they, that's why they said things in threes. I can see a connection between the lawyer and the self-aggrandizement. Well, because the lawyer is arguing for you and saying what a great, theoretically, what a great and innocent person you are. And I guess... They said hire someone else to do that. I see it. Well, they'll do it. I see it differently. Oh. I see it as maybe them referring to lawyer not in the, quite the same way that we think of as a lawyer with a suit and a briefcase and all that, but as a lawyer being someone who's familiar with the community, knows the laws, knows the traditions, and don't, if you're acting as your own lawyer, you are not going to be aware and you will not honor those. Hmm. I like that. It also could be the lawyer in the sense of advocate. Don't be your own advocate. It could also be that sort of simple also. Well, it might also be that you don't use the, law, the, law, the Torah as a, in a, use it in a sincere way, not in a, not in a legalistic way. Or not as a uh, tool or a weapon, but for its own sake. It's like Rabbi Yossi teaches, honor Torah and people will respect you, disgrace Torah and you'll be disgraced. Because they held Torah up. They were Torah teachers. So you got to remember in their context. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Yishmael teaches, one who shuns legal suits, now we're into the lawyers, that's the other thing, is free from jealousy, theft, and self-deception. One who is quick to judge others is foolish and arrogant. Where's the connection between the two sentences? Between the first and the second? Yeah, they don't. Me, Anybody? How do those go together? <clears throat> well, it, it, the second one, if you change the word judge to file a lawsuit. <laughs> right. <clears throat> it's, it's, yes, because I think it's about, <coughs> I, think, I, I do think that's what it means. Quick to judge means I'm, you know, you're wrong and I'm going to, I'm going to bring a suit against you in, in that sense. I'm going to become a, a, a contentious um, trying to, rabbis part of the Sanhedrin? Yeah, they were all lawyers and judges, all of them. <clears throat> Rabbi uh, Ishmael said, 
If called to judge, don't judge alone, for only God judges alone. So if you render an opinion, don't insist it be followed, for that's up to the majority. That's the other. That's because in their minds, no, no one person is king of the Jews. That everything goes by majority. And all, in the Talmud, all these conversations ultimately they voted on, and the, and the majority rules. So don't. It's against sort of anti arrogance and pro-humility statement. I'm going to keep moving because there's a couple I want to do before we're over. Uh, Yonatan teaches, if you live Torah when poor, you will live Torah. I love this one. When rich, if you neglect Torah when rich, you'll neglect Torah when poor. That is, study isn't about, oh, well, I'll wait till I have enough money so I can take the time to study, basically, or to do the right thing. It's whether you're poor or whether you're rich, it doesn't matter. These are habits you need to create in your life that have nothing to do with your affluence where you are in in the course of your life as well. Hillel says else, elsewhere, uh, <clears throat> don't wait to study when you have time. Because you may never have time, exactly. Rabbi Mayer teaches, work less, study more. Be humble before everyone. If you're idle from Torah, you will always find reasons to be idle. But if you work at Torah, there will be a great reward. These are all Torah teachers. So keep going. Rabbi Eliezer teaches, every kindness, I love this one, every kindness protects you. Every cruelty persecutes you. Repentance and good deeds protect you from ultimate judgment. What do you think that's about? You need to take metaphorically. Start there. Well, the ultimate judgment. Same thing about going in the right direction. Yeah. Every kindness (laughs) that you do is, it's like it adds to your, to who you are, to the kindness quotient of who you are, and every cruelty I like that he said every cruelty persecutes you because basically it follows you. Acts of cruelty, disparaging others, diminishing others, affects you. It doesn't just affect them. You know, it's like the image of anger and that kind of thing. It's you walking around with the hot coal. You're the one getting burned, you know, kind of thing. Remember, these are all about how is the best way to live our lives to be the best versions of ourselves. Yochana, the sandal maker... Yes, dear. The repentance and good deeds I find interesting because repentance implies that, of course, you will do bad deeds. Yes, thank you. But if you repent, we have Yom Kippur every year. We don't. It's not like an inoculation Mm -hmm. that you get inoculated and then you don't get it anymore. You know, transgression and screwing up and making mistakes and hurting people and. All the things that we do are all the things that we do because we're human beings and we do those things and we need a system, an opportunity to repent, to reflect, to self-examination. You know, this was before they had therapists and things like that. We had these religious traditions that helped us to to normalize the process of self-examination and say, okay, it's it's normal to go... I really screwed that one up. But this you know. is just <coughs> No, no. This is, that's a regular habit. This is about the pro- ongoing process because there's an ongoing need, and so we institutionalize it in different ways. And, and that, that's just one of them. <coughs> implies awareness. Yes. But he's not saying that you have to do repentance. He said you have to do repentance and good deeds. So repent. You may not right. have a lot to repent for. It's like it reminds me... Uh, the little kids that go to their first confession right. and they invent, they invent things to confess. They have to, confess. they have to say something. Right. Is this tshuva? Is that the word? Yes, it's tshuva. Yeah, it's tshuva and ma'asim tovim. 
uh, which are two of the themes of High Holidays, happen to be doing good deeds and, and, and self-examination, re- repentance. Um, Yohanna says, every assembly for the sake of heaven will endure, every assembly not for the sake of heaven will fail. It's okay. It's that true. There's a constant rabbinic notion that, that, you know, that intention matters. You can disagree, but if your intention in getting together as a community is to do good, you know, is for the sake of trying to figure out how to do the right thing, then ultimately it'll be okay. You know, it's that. Uh, and Elazar teaches, may the honor of your student be as dear as your own and your colleagues as dear as your teachers and reverence for your teacher as for God. Kind of like that. You know, there's a little hierarchy of how you should have honor and reverence to everybody. Your student, your teacher, you know, like that. And Yehuda teaches, be mindful in your teaching. This is for the yoga teachers. Be mindful in your teaching, for a careless teaching is as dangerous as intentional sin. What's that about? That, that, that's part of the idea that if you teach something wrong, you're really doing something horrible. Yeah, you, you don't know the consequences. You're setting someone off on who knows what path. Basically, if you're the teacher and you're the person revered by a student who has respect for you, then you need to pay attention to the words that you say and how you behave and how you what you teach that person because it's like like words. They're compared to the arrow shot from a from a bow. Once it's shot, you have no control over where it's going to land and what damage it's going to do or not do. And it's the same. It's a matter of having tremendous responsibility as a mentor, as a teacher, for the the actions of what your own teaching impels a student to do. So this is not political at all. This is not political at all either. I see this one as connected to the prior one which said, yes. have reverence for your teacher, and then this says, yeah, but the teacher has responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I see this one reflecting back to ISIS <laughs> and the propagation of, you know, their yeah. literature. No, what you do, but, but yeah. The, the next one is something that uh, is often quoted at baby namings. Um, there's a famous, uh, this is another one of the more famous phrases from the Talmud, that there are three crowns. It said the crown of Torah, the crown of the priesthood, and the crown of royalty, but the uh, crown of a good name excels them all. That The first three are the typical things that people aspire to, you know, the great learning, being a great chacham, uh, <coughs> smart guy, great learning, uh, or the crown of the priesthood or the crown of the government which is what royalty is but really what matters is something that and not and, and only a few people can achieve those greatness in those categories there's only a few people who can achieve greatness but the real greatness everybody can achieve because the real greatness the real crown is the crown of a shem tov of a good name and the good name is in your hands your name is in your hands. So, you know, yes, we quote this a baby name is because, you know, the name that really matters is the name that you create for yourself in the world. It's the same Midrash says that each of us has at least three names in our life. The name our parents give us, the name our friends call us, and the name that we earn for ourselves in the world. And this is the Shem Tov or not. A good name or not is the name that we earn for ourselves in the world. Time flies when I'm having fun. Um, Rabbi Nohorai says, move to a place of learning and don't assume you can learn by yourself. Wisdom comes from shared struggle. That's where I started an hour and a half ago. You know, don't be in a place where nobody studies. 
engage yourself in conversation and discussion and argument because that's where real wisdom comes from. Shared struggle. And Yanai says, no one can fathom the peace. Here we have the issue of theodicy, which is the great one of the great religious issues of all time in every religion, which is why do the good suffer? And Rabbi Yanai says, no one can fathom the peace of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. It's a statement of fact. It's not that. Here's the reality of life. Nobody can figure this out. There isn't like a magic answer. How come that son of a bitch is now president? I mean, you know, is is wealthy or whatever. I was just kidding. You know, what people say. People say, how come this person got so wealthy? How come that person, when he's a bad guy, how come this person does this? How come this person, you know, got this or did this? Or how come she did this? Or how come she got that? You know, she's a liar and she's a cheat and she's a that and here she is, you know, got making all this money. Whatever. You know, or, or innocent people who die, you know, kids who die from cancers out of the blue, you know, not being punished for things. In Hebrew, the word that, that gives comes, I mean, what is the literal meaning of the word that you translate as fathom? Because that seems to be really understand. It's, it's understand. I see, I see understand. Yeah, but it's really understand. No one can understand the peace of the wicked or the, there's no, there's no explanation for it. Well, there is an explanation, right? That the world, that there isn't that thing. Right. Right, but but that's not going to be their explanation. So, (laughs) so therefore, there's no explanation for why you know good people, innocent people suffer, and people that are clearly not innocent seem to thrive in the world. You know, there's no sense you can really make out of it. It's one of those mysteries of, and I think what he's saying is trying to say the obvious, which is, don't don't knock, you know, don't drive yourself crazy trying to figure this out because there's no figuring it out. This is the way the world works. Why isn't there? Life isn't fair. Yes. Life isn't fair. Right. And they would say, then why do I have to do the right thing if life isn't fair? <laughs> yes. I know. It, it's a, it's the it's one of the dilemmas of religious life and of every religion, wrestling with you know why do the good suffer? It's the final judgment. You know, and hence, yes, hence everybody came up with you know pie in the sky by and by. Hence everybody came up with heaven and the final reward. And it, I know it looks like you're suffering here, but ultimately God's going to pay you off in the afterlife, and you're going to have eternal life and all that. You know, and you know, and maybe that's true. Because I haven't been there to find out. And that the evil will end up in a very bad place. So Rabbi Matea says, really, I didn't translate this well. Really, he says, better to be a tail for lions than a head for foxes. What does that mean? What does that? What does it sound like? I like to be first to greet another, but then be a tail for lions, not a head for foxes. What do you think that? What? What is? No. Okay. What he means is. Is maybe. Uh, a lion is the most, the wonderfulest thing, and to be a the lion's the king of the forest. The lion's the king of the forest. The lion is better than being anything in the little crummy little fox. <laughs> better, well, literally, it's better to be a tail for lions than a head for foxes. And and I think that the clear to me the intention is. Better to be spending your time hanging out with people of quality, even if you're not the, the most important one there in the group, mm-hmm. than to be the head honcho of a bunch of slobs. 
and a bunch of no nothings and a bunch of no nicks. Better to be put yourself, align yourself with people who are smarter, better, whatever in your mind. Be in that group. Be in the group of quality, even if you're not the the head of it. But don't be judgmental, critical. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Appreciate <clears throat> Yes, of course. Also, that's that's the reality of life too, right? talks about there's a, the outliers about, yeah whether, mm. whether you should go to the best college you can get into right or you should go to a lower quality college where you would be one of the best and his statistics say go to the lower go to the lower one and be one of the best yes, yes I know well what do these guys know they didn't <laughs> what do they know but they they, <clears throat> yes they never took statistics so um, time is up Anybody have a favorite one that they just glanced down below? Rabbi Mayer's number 27 is one of the more other, more famous phrases from the Talmud. Don't look at the container, but rather what's inside. You know, it's like don't judge a book by its cover. It's, uh, it's the Talmud's version of don't judge a book by its cover. So, um, yes, dear. Um, it's it's not really a very Jewish notion. Our 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 acts of kindness shouldn't be random. <laughs> they should be conscious. I would say practice conscious acts of kindness. Um, but even random acts of kindness are better than no acts of kindness. So, you know, for me, that's anything. So um, I appreciate you coming in tonight. And um, uh, Perke Avot has always been the name of this compilation, Pirkei Avot, the chapters of the fathers, literally the sayings of the fathers, the ethics of the fathers of our ancestors, has always been um, my favorite section of the Talmud, um, and uh, many people's favorites. It's uh, studied and read every year, uh, and it's by tradition be- between Passover and Shavuot. Every Shabbat we read another chapter of, of Pirkei Avot. Yeah? You can. It looks to me like a little plagiarism here. On your number, the one we just did, Rabbi Mayer, 427, don't look at the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then on your top ten, the last one says, Rabbi, don't look at the picture, but rather what's inside. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Yes. Two yeah, and uh, and Mayer was probably earlier, so he, uh, but uh, Judah the Prince is that who said that last one? Yeah. yeah, Judah the Prince was the editor of the whole compilation, so uh, he's the reason. Uh, in fact, Fred asked, well, you know, who who made these decisions? What's in and what's out? Obviously, there's lots of things. He was the one. He was the one. He was the head. The Nasi he was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the guy who decided. It was getting the, the the oral tradition was getting out of control. There was so many oral traditions, the oral Torah floating around that we they were going to lose any cohesiveness. And so he was the one who took because he was the president of the Sanhedrin took the responsibility for writing down what wasn't up to that time allowed to be written down because they didn't want to write the oral law because then it would compete with the written law which was Torah and so instead he said no you, you know better to have it or we're going to lose it you know we can't, can't people are all over we can't so he edited the entire Mishnah so he was the one who made these choices he was the one who quoted people or himself you know because he was the guy 
So, um, and probably wasn't humble. Um, that'd be my guess. Um, in any event, um, Pickevot's one of those collections that you sort of, I, I never get tired of looking at because there are always things that every time I read it, I think of something else in the context of our lives, um, not being political. And, uh, and I do think when I teach, uh, the next, uh, whatever my next series is going to be, it will be uh, current events through, uh, through my own Jewish lens and we'll apply these things to that. Final saying? Something to say? No, I just had a question. The third one of the top ten, can you shed some light on Oh, Ben Bogbog. Oh, yeah, I was going to go through this, and I didn't. Ben Bogbog is, uh, first of all, he's got a cool name. I like that. But the it is Torah. Turn it, turn it, turn it, for everything is in it was his comment about the Torah. I'm sorry, I didn't go over these. These are my top ten. I just ran them off because I wrote them down once. Um, yes, it's that he believed that everything is in the Torah. So we study it, and we stu- as we do. We, and turn it is literally because that's how you read Torah. You turn the scroll to read the next section. So turn it, turn it was both literal and figurative. That the more you turn this over, the more you read Torah, the more you study Torah, the more you find answers to life's challenges, which is why we read Torah. The same Torah never changes year after year after year, week after week after week. You know, this week's Torah portion, this Saturday is Truma. It's the portion that has the phrase that I put outside on Muskingum on our dedication plaque of the building when we dedicated the, the building. It says in Hebrew, Asuli Mikdash build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. So, and I love that phrase because it was our notion, good reconstructions and otherwise, that where holiness dwells, where God in that sense dwells is where people are, is when people gather together to do the right things, that's what inspires and brings holiness into the world.